since brevity is the soul of wit. More of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward, an infinite and endless liar, an hourly promise breaker, the owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertained. I'd beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. And I'm Aiden. And we are the Bix. Indeed we are. And this episode we're talking about Timon or Timon, 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 Timonothy, Timon, Timon of Athens. That is uh, the <laughs> name of the play. It is, uh, it's one of Shakespeare's lesser known plays. Yes. We, we did not cover it in our list of lesser known plays. Because, because we'd never read it. Never read it. That's how little it's known. But apparently it, it did... Um remain on stage and was well received well into the 20th century there were people who put it on yeah it's not like and it's it's not an original play it's it's based on you know ancient greek yes how many of shakespeare's plays were original very few but yes yes. but i mean it's 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 got some heft to it as well you know some fun facts about this It, it contributed to the english language not this play but the story so i mean it's it's a it's a it's a story. It's a story, and not, it's not one of the most engaging stories, though. Let's yeah, let's and say I think that. I think I can summarize it pretty well, Lindsay. So I'm ready for my thirty second uh, synopsis of this kind of unremarkable play because there's not much to say. So um, I think I'm ready. Go. Timon of Athens, or Timon, uh, is a wealthy dude in Athens, landowner, big big important dude in town, uh, and he. Uh, hosts a bunch of parties and everyone likes him because he gives away stuff and he's really loved. Then he goes bankrupt and all of a sudden all everyone who lent him money to keep him borrowing and giving things to other people calls in his debts. He goes crazy, goes into the madhouse, out into the wilderness, finds a bunch of gold, throws it at people and uh, hilarity ensues. Hilarity ensues is how you describe the tragedy of Timon of Athens? Yeah, it's it's (laughs) maybe questionable, but I, I... I struggle to find the uh, tragedy in this play at times. Yes, I think that's something we will have to talk about, whether or not this actually qualifies as a tragedy. Um, Which, it's arguable either way. I think maybe that could be a good ancient bickerings question for this episode. Perhaps, perhaps. Um, But... Let's 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 get into the background a little bit of the play itself. Yeah. Um, probably written around 1606 by William Shakespeare and co-authored by Thomas Middleton. Um, this is the first play in quite a while where mm-hmm. um, it's kind of popularly understood yeah. that Shakespeare didn't write the whole thing. Yeah, like I, I mean, it's it's likely that there were other plays that had you know yeah other people coming people, in and, yeah, yeah up and stuff yeah Carrie Fisher just in the margins yeah, of but. But this is one where, I mean, it's pretty much established that this is a co-authored play. Yeah. Um, and it's sometimes it's it's put with the problem plays. It used to be considered a tragedy mm-hmm. through and through. Um, but I think for some of the reasons that we'll get to, it, it lands sometimes in the problem play section. And I was reading it and researching the play a little bit. And, and it was interesting how much of the, the commentary revolves around when it was written yeah. because it's not a play that features a lot of commentary about um, current events. There is some, some some suggestion that it's meant to critique, the, critique or yeah. satirize or parody the ongoing ridiculousness of the Jacobean court. Yep. Aiden, you were the one telling me that um, the courtiers would like go into debt to finance yeah, their lifestyle. Yeah, so it was like a vicious cycle of uh, the king would, uh, in order to have this lavish court in which everybody was receiving gifts all the time and everything, he would have to go into debt in order right. to pay for the gifts that he would bestow. Uh, and then the people who he bestowed them on, the courtiers, uh, had to appear and give gifts in return and appear really rich mm. uh, in order to keep up this appearance at court. So they would in turn go into debt and they would actually wind up being in debt with each other all the time, back and forth, and then uh, in a, just like a yeah, vicious debt cycle uh, that is kind of hilarious. All when you debt think about cycles it. are vicious, it, really. When you think about it, debt true. is a pretty vicious thing. But <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so so it's it fits within the broad time period of 
early Jacobean, the early Jacobean court, but um, it also has some links to the more cynical, bitter plays like King Lear and Coriolanus. Yeah, um, there's definitely a lot of Lear in in T- Timon's Timon's uh, escape into the nature and right. going nuts out there. Yeah, yeah thematically it fits, yeah. right? Um, but then the way that people have looked at this play, it it always struck scholars as somewhat unfinished and maybe a little bit less um, put together or mm-hmm. well put together, which was always kind of a hint that this might not have been the work of one author. Mm-hmm. But uh, starting in like the mid 19th century, I think is when linguistic analysis and um, uh, rare language analysis began. And, and so they've like, the play has been really strictly analyzed in that regard. Um, the structure of the play itself, mm-hmm. the fact that it, it, in the folio is not divided into acts, yes. which I did not realize. No, because our version well, of course. is obviously divided but, into acts. Yeah. But uh, Shakespeare's company, the Kingsmen, did not begin formally writing out act structures in their plays until they took up residency at the Blackfriars Theatre in the winter of 1608, I think. Um, that's when they started writing in these act breaks. So, I mean, Time of Athens is really hard to... When we were watching the... The BBC, uh, the BBC yeah. version, like the whole second half broadly of the play is just like time in, in a cave and people coming to see him. Yeah. And there's no real clear, like it's just well, it's, scene they, after they, scene yeah, after scene. In, well, they bring it into one scene in act four in, in our version, at least mm-hmm. that's how it's broken out. So it's just, it's literally, I think it was like most scenes are like anywhere from five to 12, 15 pages. This one was 42 pages. Yeah, or something yeah, yeah. Like that. So it yeah. was, it was crazy. But that, that might be because it's not, the, the act structure is not built into, yeah, into it. it doesn't yeah. have that kind of that structure mm-hmm. um which at least on the written text in the folio dates it to pre-1608 so it couldn't probably isn't written before or after 1608 mm. um but it also does feature some some minute allusions to like the november 1605 gunpowder plot mm-hmm. and a pamphlet that thomas middleton based um a yorkshire tragedy one of his other plays on oh, okay Um, so, which would make sense if he drew from that for his play, why not for this one? Mm -hmm. So that's how they've, they've dated it. And I found that really fascinating because this is stuff that I guess I'd kind of taken for granted that we just know when Shakespeare wrote his plays, but really you don't. (laughs) No, we've, no, I know. We've commented on that a number of times. But but. I never really, it never sunk into me until I was reading this and I was like, wow, like people have to sit here and really think about it. Yeah. They have to, yeah. Divest or divulge, or that's not the right word. Neither. They have to dive into. Uh, you know the text and look for those little clues about yeah Yeah. these these offhand references that you can't make if the event hasn't happened Um, but then you have to question like is it is it an offhand comment on this event or is it just Shakespeare playing with language and it happens to relate closely to something that doesn't hasn't even happened yet yeah so there's there's a whole slew of textual evidence for every every which way I guess it just kind of made me um appreciate the the true Shakespeare scholars yeah oh for sure every time this effort every time when they're like it was definitely this year I'm like I'm sure a lot of work went into that I'm just (laughs) taking you at face value thank you um Yes, as we said, the play is based on this Athenian story about a man named Timon who um, had tons of friends, but then loses them as soon as he loses his money. And was in the original play, uh, as it was written down uh, in the original story, Aristophanes and uh, Plato Comicus has some stuff, Lucius, or Lucian, sorry, Mm -hmm. um, wrote about it as well. He goes to tilling his field, or tilling fields generally, and digs up a pot of gold. Yeah. Um, that way so in you know Shakespeare and Middleton take some liberties there with the story of him hiding out in a cave and becoming a misanthrope although that is definitely part of it and uh and the word timon to be a timonist um the act of uh timonizing someone timonism as a thing these are all words that what came from well it's it's a particular kind of misanthropy oh, a particular kind of, of hatred of man um huh. and and it's used in i think is it withering heights the word is brought up or maybe not i can't remember it's it's like i was reading through the wikipedia entry and they had you know different examples of where um timonism or calling someone a time and timonian person um has has occurred it's it is a a word it's It's like it's like machiavellian you know yeah you're but obviously this didn't come from shakespeare it came from the The character in greek literature 
Like Pandarus, exactly. Pander. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's Shakespeare picking up and running with it. Um, speaking of Shakespeare, though, um, yeah, Lindsay mentioned the 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 metrical and linguistic analysis that, that they've done on the the text itself to kind of determine that Shakespeare probably didn't write it alone. Um, and it, it has long been theorized that uh, what's his name was it Middleton, Thomas Middleton. Middleton uh, was the co-author. Um, and it's I I noticed it when I was reading, uh, particularly in the fir- very first scene. Yeah. It just doesn't have Shakespeare's flow. There's characters asking questions that the other characters respond to without they're not answering the question mm-hmm. and they're not even talking about the same topic anymore. It's, Interesting. it's yeah. kind of like a, a, a bizarre, um, yeah, it's like there were two people writing and they were writing totally different plays and someone just mishmashed all the, the kind of like the, the times when I've written fic with friends and we like each take a chapter and yes. it's like, we didn't read each other's chapters yeah. before we wrote and you just exactly. kind of go yeah. for like, it. Yeah. You had an idea of where the story's going like, Oh yeah, I'll do that part. And then it doesn't make any sense when <laughs> okay. you get to it. But all right. so something like that, um, there's also incidents of speeches that start in verse and transition to prose, which Shakespeare rarely did. He'd either give a character a block of verse or a block of, pro- of uh, prose, prose yeah. and and work with it uh, within those kind of structures. Middleton, on the other hand, loved to play around with this kind ah, of thing. So go. this yeah. was another pretty heavy uh, clue that um, that led to Middleton being a. a I was going to say culprit. That's not the right word. The um, <laughs> co-conspirator. The. <laughs> the um, Co-author. Co-author. Yeah. yeah I was saying co-conspirator, hoping you would pick up. Nope. On that, that's not even the word that I was thinking of anyway, okay. but that's fine. Okay. So we're in a totally different wavelength. That's good. Stick with culprit. Yeah. Okay. He was the culprit. <laughs> he was. Um, and there, there's, uh, it's generally kind of assumed that Shakespeare wrote first and Middleton kind of came in and, and took a second pass. But I, I actually kind of view it the other way. I think Shakespeare would have come in and, and, uh, rewritten all the characters and stuff like well, that but and that's just me and there was an interesting research paper that um i didn't get a chance to read the whole thing because it was behind a paywall and i didn't have time Damn to JSTOR. it wasn't on jstor <laughs> and if it was on jstor i would have had access yeah. to that but um i didn't email the the authors to get access yet so yeah. if i do i will share <laughs> what i find but the the paper that i had read um says it's there's some evidence to suggest that they wrote it simultaneously, which is kind of a romantic notion. These two authors sitting, you know, heads bowed before their tallow candle, you know, fingers blackened with ink and, you know, trading barbs on paper. I think that's not not how I would want to write, but no, no, definitely. We, no. We've talked about this many times on the podcast. Yeah. We cannot write together. It's... It Not just, just with each other, but with very, very few other people. Yeah, no, it, well, if anybody, I've never, I've tried it a couple times, it never works. And yeah. uh, so props to anybody who can do it. Yep. Um, and yeah, and just another thing that jumped out at me um, was uh, the scenes in Act 3 where the servants go to the three different people and ask yeah, for money. Yeah, yeah. It's the same scene three times. Yeah. That seems like a complete waste. Like Shakespeare wouldn't usually do that. He might do it once or he'd space out the three like he does in Merchant of Venice, but... Or just that, have them go out and then come back and have their conversations yeah. and relay Say, what had been well, said. And, and you know what's going to come yeah. not only after yeah. the first one, but even before he goes out, yeah. you can tell this is a play where the guy gets shafted by his quote-unquote friends, right? right? So it doesn't really illuminate anything. It's it's not necessary to the plot because you can summarize it quickly. And uh, you, those characters you're not connected to at all. Some of them have names, yeah. some of them don't. Fleshing out those characters doesn't really seem to serve the plot as much. No. But it does seem to fit with Middleton's... Uh, so if you're suggesting that it's Middleton who wrote those or that it was a disjointed writing process yeah. that led to those scenes, yeah. um, Middleton was known as a writer who really like to satirize or mm. could satirize greed and yeah. wealth and um and and really liked that cynical urban quality which mm. Shakespeare did do there there not, was not to, never to this extent right? no so i mean that that might be another point in in middleton's mm-hmm. favor that that leads to his influence his his little sticky fingerprints all mm-hmm. over all over the play um yeah of course i don't know enough about thomas middleton to no say no sure, we but. can't no but it definitely does feel very different than anything we've read so far from yeah. Shakespeare. I mean, it does have the pathos of of a Lear-like figure being wronged by the world and going off and and being pissed about it. But it doesn't have the the Lear-like tragic aspect to it as well. No, because like Timon just seems like an idiot. Like he literally, yeah. like he literally just couldn't manage his finances, and then he's surprised when they all blow up in his face. Yeah. And like, yeah, there's no fatal flaw. I mean, his fatal flaw, I guess, might be that charity. he's well, and that's and ignorance, maybe. Yeah, yeah, but, but that's not something that leads you to feel so bad for him. That, no, and it's you know? and it's not. They 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 try too hard to make him sympathetic, um, 
Whereas Shakespeare's, most of Shakespeare's tragic heroes, yes, they have sympathetic aspects, but they also have flaws. Yeah. And cruelty and, and problems. And and Timon doesn't have any of that. He's literally just like, especially in the BBC production, I have to say, uh, the actor who played him. Oh, crap. He was the guy from uh, Game of Thrones, the chief priest dude who got blown up in the green fire. Anyways, uh, that that actor, he did an, an amazing job of really having Tymon feel like he is... Um, he, he, these people are genuine friends when he's when he's handing out the gifts and he's in this big banquet and he's saying oh it's so great to have friends like you nearby all these gifts i give are just for friendship not knowing that everyone else around him uh is uh just counting on him to make themselves richer they, they don't care about him at all um so they really kind of sell that as him just being kind of ignorant of their true intentions i guess right so it's 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 a weird feeling because you you'd feel purely bad for him um whereas with a lot of other shakespeare's other like you think of Macbeth, uh lear hamlet they they you feel bad for them but you also realize that they have that they kind of deserve what comes to them because they have this fatal flaw Macbeth has too much ambition hamlet has the you know the indecision and lear has his inability to read his children or whatever pride whatever yeah yeah so like there's there's this uh inherent uh tension within the character yeah there's there's none of that no in time at all no and i guess that's it was jonathan price by the way oh thank you um and and i did feel with his portrayal that there was a like you said a pathos to the scenes where he's realizing that he's lost his friends um and and more so that he that he's in so much debt so much trouble financially Mm. um that there was something relatable to that as a modern anxious financial millennial yeah Yeah. right (laughs) where there there was something relatable about that so i get it but from a Shakespearean standpoint, he's not the most engaging yeah. main character. And yeah. when he does flip, he goes from being in love with the world and in love with the people. He's so in love. He's paying off random strangers' debts. And yeah. he's, you know, ordering yeah, up more I met more that guy meat. once. Yeah, I'm going to get him out of jail. Yeah, and, yeah. And, 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 you know, let's have all the meats. And everybody eat, 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 you know. And he's making fun of the philosopher. Uh, oh, Oh, Antebellum, Antigonus, uh, uh, Archimedes, whatever. What are those? The philosopher yeah. um, for being what he ends up becoming, yeah. and his switch is so complete, so complete. Yeah, he just yeah. goes from loving everyone to completely hating everyone. Yeah, and it doesn't feel like there's any nuance or, or transition to that. It's literally just everyone loves me. I love everyone. They're all my friends. Oh, they hate me. I hate them. I hate everybody. But it's not just hating the people who have wronged him. It's hating everyone. And then he goes off into the country and in a normal Shakespeare play, that might lead to some, you know, kernel of truth being discovered. And that doesn't happen. So there's not, there's not really a, the story is not, it doesn't feel Shakespeare. No, it feels it feels like he wrote it with somebody else, or or yeah, was yeah. was combining ideas. They they were taking a uh, an old story and yeah. trying to make it fresh and new. I mean, and the, yeah, the the difference where uh, he just kind of throws the money at people and he doesn't really want to yeah. re-enter society. It all feels very Shakespearean, like that that aspect of it. Because um, I think in the original, doesn't he actually wind up going back to? Athens with his money, with his with the pot of no, he he throws mud at people or something like that. Okay, okay, so that's similar. Okay, never mind then. But yeah, no, I it's yeah, it's a weird play that way. Yeah. Methinks thou art a general offense, and every man should beat thee. I think thou was created for men to breathe themselves upon thee. So if we broke this down to some of its core thematic elements. Um, let, let's start with the city versus country, I think, because um, okay. I just, I mentioned it just a yeah, minute yeah, ago. Yeah. So, um, as I said, the, in a normal Shakespearean play, a character would experience the corruption of the city and mm-hmm. would seek the restorative solace of the countryside mm-hmm. to, you know, help them understand something about themselves or help them find peace or whatever. And then they might rejoin society. Usually they rejoin society. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that that moment of going into the country, going into the forest in Midsummer Night's Dream, um, in yeah, the forest of Arden like it, and yeah, As You Like It, yeah. 
would be a transformative moment for them. Mm-hmm. Here, yes, the city of Athens is absolutely corrupted and it's it's a diseased body, right? Yeah, We've we talked about much. this many times um, in Shakespeare's political plays. There's usually a rotten core to the state of Denmark mm-hmm. or uh, Julius Caesar's Rome or yeah. whatever. It's a diseased body politic and that's what Athens is. So we get that when Timon moves away from that the expectation is that he will go to the country and will come to some understanding and that doesn't happen he dies yeah. and and there's no great revelation there's no i mean the people of athens i think and and the people that well, spurned him want she, his help and he refuses and and yeah. their fate is kind of left uncertain well Alci- is it alcibiades is alcibiades the no is yeah. that the general or yeah. is that the okay yeah but we were talking about the philosopher no. who's a different guy Fuck, we should have memorized these names a bit better. Memorize <laughs> as as these always, names. I'm never great. But anyways, there's the general character mm. uh, who comes in at the end and threatens uh, Athens uh, with war for a number of reasons. They kicked him out after mm-hmm. he stood up for Timon. And, um, and also he's coming back to avenge Timon at the same time. Yeah. Uh, and when he presses this uh, assault and he threatens to destroy the city, they give in to his demands right. and he, he spares everyone. Um which you could read as, you know, the external good nature coming down again, you know, with force to correct all the wrongs of sure. the corrupt city. Um, but the character of Timon doesn't participate in any of nope. that. And it doesn't really feel like Athens has um, been fixed by this this onslaught of the good in in the character of the general so and it is also by these it is also by it these, is, right? yes so uh you, you there's still this unresolved tension there um which again is kind of similar you could you could draw the parallel to hamlet with Fortinbras arriving to set things right there there is still some tension there but most of the bad actors have died uh yeah. you know uh hamlet's uncles died uh what's his name his his foil the, the brother of, of Ophelia. I'm terrible with names again. You know, all the all Laertes. the bad... Yeah, Laertes. All the bad people in the story of Hamlet have died, including Hamlet. So it's kind of a clean slate. Yes. Here, all the bad people who wrong Timon, they all get gold thrown at them and move on with their lives. Well, but it's almost like if Hamlet had ended when Hamlet died, at that moment, if he had the last line of the play and he he died and you mm-hmm. didn't have Fortinbras coming in and you didn't have... Yeah. Right? Um it would have the same kind of feeling because it's it's not clear, maybe not exactly the same, but it's not clear without Fortinbras in yeah. Hamlet that the wrongs will be righted, Yeah. right? Yeah. Whereas in Time and of Athens, that's the same thing, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's a, this is where the bitterness comes in, right? It's just, it's, yeah, Timon he... gets his revenge, sort of. Yeah. Because Athens well, is probably going to fall to Alcibiades. Well, but he does. They don't. They get away with it. That's, right. That's but yeah. It's like it's he doesn't really. His death comes at a point where the end of the play is there's no um, resolution to the central conflict, except that Timon is dead. Yeah, because what is the conflict, right? Yeah, okay. So if if the conflict is corruption of the urban monetary system, cough New York, cough London, uh, these these places corrupt absolutely, and uh, you need a cleansing force from outside to come set them free. Um, Then and and Tim Timon is the embodiment of what happens with that. Then he doesn't get clean at the end; he just dies. You know, like yes, he, but, he, he as yeah. the moral center of the play does not have a positive resolution. No, so, that's uh, exactly. Yeah. So what happens in Athens is really kind of completely secondary. There, no, but it, I, I think what what the um, it's not completely secondary in the sense that if the, the conflict is between Timon and Athens, right, he's. Like the the social structure has enabled him to live yeah, okay, this okay. life and okay. has enabled the people to treat him that way. Sure, right. So yeah, so he loses. Right. No, I know. Right. <laughs> yeah, so there's no, but there's but no... I mean, he's released from the mortal coil that has caused him. So I mean, it's a resolution of sorts in <laughs> yeah, the sense that but the, there's but there's no but there's, there's no there's no moral reckoning. Clarity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing of that. And that is, I think, what is so. I don't want to say it's unsettling, but it's not. 
there yeah it feels you feel this almost this almost reminds me of like you know like those kids on the playground who are like i'm gonna take my ball and go home because they don't like the way the game is being played yeah. that's what time and feels what this feels like and in allowing him to do that to just leave and not address the problem yeah it's like he's i i have less i have way less sympathy for him than I would if he well, tried yeah. to fight back or yeah. if he stood up for himself, if there was a trial and he had to face all of the people all his debtors or whatever, like, like like something more along the lines of the Merchant of Venice. But that's where you get yeah. that, that if this was a truly well done Shakespearean play, it might have gone you might've gotten that. Well, and that, and that's why when he found the gold, I was like, Whoa, this is a major plot shift like yeah. where he's out in the field or the cave or whatever. And he just digs up and there's a ton of gold there. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, he's going to go back into town, set things right. Yeah. He's going to be the, the creditor this time. And he's going to, you know, call in his debts and write yeah. all the wrong people. No, he just goes crazy and throws money at people. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. It, like like it, it, there's it, no, there's no hint of trying to address that, that underlying issue that he's just so bitter. He's like, yeah, fuck you i'm gonna throw everything away yeah he's just gone so far past the urban decayed monetary system that he 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 can't go back to correct it and that that's that's usually what shakespeare's heroes like you think of again lear is a good example like he does go crazy he does give up everything and he absconds with uh the the world as it is um but then uh, Cordelia brings him back. Yeah, there's and a circle. There right? is. There it's, is. And it's a return to. Yes. But and, and but nothing are is set correct. Yes. And that that does yes. not happen here. And that's what it. No, this is a like straight it. line. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> It's from from city to country to death, and yeah. that's all. Like it doesn't. There is no return at yeah. all at the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, which yeah it does make it and and that's the original story. I just feel like in in yeah if Shakespeare had if this had ah I hate saying this because it it discredits. Middleton and I'm not trying to do that I just think when you have two authors writing together there's that there's a tension between the writers that I think translates to a poorer story in some cases not all cases I know some people can make this work but this and this is my own bias coming out I think against co-authoring things but it there that tension doesn't get resolved because you've got people who yeah. You know, if Shakespeare well, had been writing this alone, it would have... Yeah, because it's instinctual. Shakespeare just naturally wants to take the character in that direction, I think. Um, and that's yeah. been shown time and time again in all the plays that we've read so far. Yeah, like um, there would have been a clever subplot that mirrored the main plot. And yeah, the, and, and there's none of that. And, and yeah, I mean, he would have found some way to tie it back to current events and we'd be able to point well, to it. I mean... No, yeah, I, they did, this does tie back. Yeah, to but more. It would have been. Okay, it would have been possibly. More clear. But but there'd have point... been an Earl of Gloucester or something <laughs> like that. You know, possibly. In any case, in any case, it's not. It it does again not feel like a Shakespeare nope. play for that reason because yeah. of this city country dynamic just is left completely unsolved. Yeah. Um, and it's it's really really interesting that way. Life's but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot. It's full of sound and fury. Signifying? Nothing. And the thing that typifies the city most of all, obviously, is is greed and, right. and wealth. That, yeah. That's what that is the corrupting the corrupting force here. So um I mean there, there's lots of ways of looking at it. It is kind of the uh, central conceit of the play is that greed is is absolute and corrupts and it, it, it destroys all hints of human mm. connection right mm-hmm. um so you know you kind of have to wonder is is time to blame for the greed of his friends um does he does he encourage it by by being so giving all the time and refusing yeah. uh gifts in return like there's so many instances where someone's like oh i'll give you this for it and he's like oh yeah no don't because i think he has that famous line semi-famous it's it you know if you're a giver you can't get anything back or else then you're not giving it right 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 right. yeah yeah it almost seems like he's um he's like that guy that we all knew growing up who would like spend his his lunch money he'd buy all of his friends stuff and then he'd go hungry (laughs) it was almost like he like timon although i don't think timon is necessarily thinking about it as i'm doing all this good stuff to other people so that they'll like me they'll like me well no no no, that they all that that then I can call on them to help me later on. Yeah. Like, I don't think it's, it's like, he's not trying to get them to, I I don't know how to, it seems a little bit different than that, than the example I made, but, but there's, um, 
in giving so much to so many people, I do wonder what, like his ignorance of his own financial status, Mm -hmm. I think the bigger issue there that he's, he's not doing it to be, I I don't read it anyway. I don't see it as him doing it to be um, altruistic or anything necessarily. He's just, he has no, it's almost like he doesn't have any idea of the value of what he's giving away. Because if he did, yeah, it, he would yeah. he would know that he doesn't have this to give. Yeah, I, right. I, I feel like he's. I mean, oh, well, and it's worth mentioning that in the, especially the Roman period, mm-hmm. um, especially during the Roman Republic, uh, citizens, especially prominent citizens like a, a Timon would be, uh, they 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 often engage in public works like what we would now yeah. call public works, like yeah. building a bridge or a, a, a uh, aqueduct or something like yeah. that. A major thing would just be privately funded. Like they right. would just do that out of the goodness, the goodness of, of their, their hearts. hearts. So everybody would know that they're rich and that they've done yeah. this for the city. So the city likes them. Yeah. So this is a common kind of idea. Um, but getting, going to your point, it's almost like uh, time is like the typical born rich type who really doesn't understand what things cost so when he says yeah i'll have another feast he doesn't understand that that, that costs, costs money money yeah, yeah that there is an actual cost for this he's just so used to being rich and that, that that's part of what makes his character unlikable as well is that he literally has he seems so cut off from the reality of what it costs that um do, do you really pity someone like that who, yeah. who just like who thinks he he is himself is a bottomless pit of wealth? Lucille like, Bluth not understanding how much a banana costs twenty dollars <laughs> or a pint of milk or whatever a politician <laughs> yeah you know, yeah like, doesn't know what a they they've never costs. been to a grocery store yeah yeah but but Timon has his wealth is not inherited he has land that would be inherited I would imagine or well, earned and, or something and he seems to have won a lot of it by being a general for the city of Athens right like that's what he first so I don't I don't think he's for. he's the same kind of he's no. not you know. Um, like the play doesn't uh, Hilton or something. No, exactly. Like the play doesn't back that up. It's just right. that's what it feels like. Yeah, it, it feels I guess. like he he really never kind of grasped what wealth Well, he certainly he certainly doesn't seem like the kind of people that we would have grown up with who, you know, yeah. uh, you know, lower middle class um understanding the value of a dollar, not giving everything away. Yeah. And and when you do have something um when you come into money you're you're generous to an extent with your with your friends because you understand that you know winning the lottery is going to or a couple of our friends won a 50-50 draw once and gave yeah. all of us 100 bucks or yeah. something was it 100 bucks yeah, yeah, yeah. it was like oh my god that was so generous but yeah. it's because that's what you do yeah. really really wealthy people hoard their money right well or they give away what seems like a lot but it's a pain. it really it's isn't yeah, yeah exactly like, yeah um so so yes, to an extent, I see what you're saying, but I also see that that the other side of it is that he's he's generous in the way that people who um, who have a lot and want to share it with other people are generous. Yeah. But the problem is that he doesn't know that it's not a bottomless pit. Yeah. I really do. I I do think it's his ignorance that is. Yeah. If you were to nail down a fatal flaw for him, it yeah, would be def- his ignorance. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's it's less about greed in this case yeah. as so much as it is about um, like the, the connection between wealth and friendship. And I, yeah. I think that, that was another one of the themes that we were going to touch on, obviously, yeah. is, is friendship. And it's, it's um, you know, the key question, like, are any of Timon's friendships real? Like, yeah. And obviously the answer is kind of no. I mean, you, his you, friendships with his servants might be. Yeah, exactly. Real. Yeah, they <laughs> seem to really like him, yeah. which is usually the opposite, you know, like. Yeah. They're the ones poking fun in the sides and the soliloquies yeah. and stuff in yeah, his yeah. Shakespearean play. But in this time, it's, it's. They're the only ones who are looking out for him. Exactly. Really. And so the the connection between wealth and friendship is, is one that doesn't really exist. It's literally just. Um, wealth exists on its own and it's enjoyed and friendship is something that can't be bought well yeah and so it reminds me of recent discourse around emotional labor and the toll of emotional labor Mm. and how i think there was a piece not long ago um that was re-upped by the new yorker where they were talking about like actually what would the bill be for letting someone cry on your shoulder like what's the toll of the emotional labor that i'm doing and and people were really upset about that. They're like, friendship is not a transactional yeah. relationship. Yeah. But in time and of Athens, it is, right? It's a transactional yeah. thing. And I think the greed is not Timon's greed because I don't think Timon has any idea of the value of the money that he throws away at yeah, the end. Yeah, he's not the value a greedy of the money. person himself. No, at not all. at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
but the other Athenians, the Athenian senators yeah. who have benefited from his generosity and who have enjoyed his parties. And Apomantis is the name of the philosopher. Thank you. Um, all of the people who have who have been scorned by this by Epimantus in the very first scene, mm-hmm. um, when they have the chance to return that favor to Timon, they won't because yeah. it's now yeah. the relationship, the transactional nature of it is not benefiting them anymore. Yeah. So they can wash their hands and call in their debts and walk well, away. Yeah, and I think the the play's pretty clear that that's not friendship though. Like that, no, like, exactly. Yeah, you know, yeah. It, it is. It is still you know of the same mind as us where friendship has there's something valuable there itself yes that, that can't be quantified through money no. which is yeah again uh but Timon doesn't understand that and that's no. maybe that's again it's yeah. the ignorance it's of it. that fact right? yeah not just ignorance of money but ignorance of of um the value of human relationships the value of human well, work and the structure of human relationships yeah like, he exactly. literally does seem to feel like the gifts are the important thing in that's the, the friendship yeah. yeah exactly and it's and it's just it's so not. clearly not <laughs> and it, it, it it yeah again it, it kind of and another thing that's kind of odd and very un-shakespearean is the fact that um when sorry what was the philosopher's name Appomattis. Appomattis, uh meets him when he's out in the the in yes. the cave and they're all of a sudden on the same wavelength. There's no shared realization that you were right. He's yeah. still just angry at Appomattis yeah. for for being the exact same misanthrope as he. So it's well, yeah. But Appomattis's misanthrope misanthropy is not. Um, he's he's got a a philosophical reason for it. He does, I don't think he well, hates yeah. everyone. He he just sees the but, but in in a regular Shakespearean yes, play, yes. the main character would come to realize that you were you right. You were right. And I then, should have listened it, to yeah, you. Yeah, and he's like, "Oh, and he, he would have backed up the points that that uh, Appomattus had made earlier." You know, like there would have been uh, a connection between the philosophical reasoning behind the misanthropy and the yeah. practical reasoning of Timon's. And that just never appears here. Yeah. So it's it really does feel like it's it's uh, like you have yeah like like we've said many times this doesn't have the Shakespearean B plot of following yeah. Appomattus and having him watch Timon's uh, disintegration the way you have uh, Edmund or Edgar's yeah. watching Lear fall apart and having this this secondary plot that that kind of mirrors the first. Mm-hmm. That, that's all missing. So you really don't get a, a really good sense of, of whether Timon's come around to realize that that's not what friendship is. They, they could have had a great discussion about what friendship is when they realized that they're the two friends who hate everybody else. You right. know, like, We're going to bond. We're going to become best friends. <laughs> yes. Right now, before you kill yourself, you know, in the cave like that, that, that feels like a Shakespeare scene and it, it just doesn't exist here. So it, again, it feels kind of incomplete. Like there's an exploration of this topic that just doesn't go anywhere. Did we just become best friends? Yep. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. I, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it, and it leads to kind of the, the last big topic or mm-hmm. theme of misanthropy and suffering yeah. and, and the point of all of that. Because, yeah, you've got um, the seeds, the kernel of this interesting idea in Appomantis and his um, discussions in the very first scene that are totally foreshadowing exactly what's going to happen once the yeah. deaths are all called in. Yeah. Um, but you're right. It goes nowhere. And, and there are, there are all these opportunities, but Shakespeare and Middleton don't jump on them the yeah. way that you kind of expect them to. Yeah. So you've got a, a, a misanthropic main character mm-hmm. whose misanthropy serves no purpose why does it matter that he suffers so much? Yeah. Why does it matter yeah. that the Athenians are suffering through his loss? What is the point of all of this? It doesn't seem like it serves much of one. function. No. Right? It's just there to again, like I said, there's a there's that bitterness to it. It's like I'm just it's just vengeful, but there's no morality behind it. Yeah. That would yeah, make it raging. feel cathartic. Yeah. It just feels sad and pathetic. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So what's the point? I don't have an answer. Uh, no, that's, uh, that's, that's the end of our discussion about the thematic links between Time I, of Athens and misanthropy. It, it's true. I just, it really does feel incomplete. And that that's kind of a shame because when I started reading the play, especially that first scene, I was just like, oh, this is 
this is not very enjoyable. Um, but seeing it performed on the BBC yeah. redeemed it a little bit um, right. because it really did feel like there was this this arc to the character to a certain extent. It just gets cut off early mm-hmm. and it doesn't proceed in a way that's as satisfying as usual. Yeah. Um, but reading the play the first time, I was like, this is just this is just boring. Like mm-hmm. he's just complaining and then he's feeding people stones and water and yeah. it's like okay i i guess i mean it it's was kind just, of fun scene but it, yeah but it, it but it, it doesn't yeah it doesn't it, it doesn't, doesn't say anything it doesn't say anything it doesn't, it doesn't go anything. anywhere and it doesn't tie up at the end which no. is all the things that make shakespeare so enjoyable and that's why people for so long have been like yeah did is this is, a shakespeare this play shakespeare? yeah i think well and it's gonna be interesting when we get to some of the later ones where yeah. you know it's well known that he didn't Henry write VIII all of it. yeah yeah, yeah. um th- those will be interesting to look at and yeah. see if we find similar complaints there what's mine is yours and what is yours is mine so one thing that really struck me when we were um, reading the play, watching the film, um, the we were struggling to think, well, what are we going to talk about? This is such a boring play. It's like, but there's a lot of relevance to our modern day yeah. culture. <laughs> I mean, we're sitting in a time when billionaires are going to send themselves into space rather than deal with Hopefully the problems <laughs> of, <laughs> um, of, the, of the world that's, that we that's live on. on. Fire. Yeah, exactly. But um, so greed and wealth, inequality and um and debt and, and the <laughs> yes the the debt i okay so tangent i was on tiktok today um because i'm one of those bitches yeah. um and this guy like completely broke apart what is wrong with america <laughs> like well the in, in minimum wage job hard. and and not having any paid sick leave and not being able to uh, being in debt because you go back to college to try and get a better job and then uh, but no we can't give you college we can't give you debt relief because that's socialism yeah. and oh I, I had a kid but I, I lost my job and well you're just lazy and I'm like oh my god right like um, our world is broken capitalism <laughs> has broken us I think yes. um so, so I think that a play like Time of Athens feels timely mm-hmm. in a way because it's speaking to the anxieties that we feel as modern um, mm-hmm. inhabitants of the, the world that is broken Yeah, by I, this financial system. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, there's – uh, I don't think many of us can – uh get on get on the same page as time and in terms of like having a lot of wealth and just giving it away um right but, but the sense of uh the idea and th- this is something we didn't talk about much at all but there is this kind of uh recurring motif and, and mention of fates and the, the wheel of fate right. and everything uh obviously played a big role because time is at the top and then oh all the he's all the way to the bottom really quick um so that that's kind of uh revolved throughout the the play as well but and I think we can all uh, appreciate that sense, the, the, the precarity of a financial yes. situation. Yeah. You know, like uh, most of us, I mean, it's probably better if you're in Europe, but in, in North America, even in Canada, it's, you know, there's a limited social safety net. There's, there's, you know, you're going to get unemployment benefits for a little while, but they don't, they won't pay your mortgage. Barely. Right. They will not cover all your expenses if you. I mean, we're off. not, we're not one bad accident away from bankruptcy like our American neighbors are, but it can yeah. still lead to, there are, there are still things that, that can devastate you financially yeah well and get, really yeah, get, really easily yeah getting laid off and, and what have you there's there's still huge a huge sense of uh the fact that your financial future is out of your control exactly really at the end yeah. of the day and and you can work as hard as you want and and try as best as you can to make yourself better and more valuable to the people around you to you know make more money mm-hmm. and they really won't matter at the end of the day if something big comes and changes it. It's a very millennial thing. I mean, we've lived through the Great Recession yeah. and now COVID. COVID and, you know, once in a lifetime economic collapse has happened twice in our lifetime. In the and last 10, 15 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like we're, we're just, we're, we're this sense of uh, not being able to control what happens with your finances. Yeah, like a knife it edge. feels, yeah, feels very real. And, um, and there's also that, um, that idea that's, so prominent in especially western culture in america canada that you can it's what happens to uh, the things that are affecting the wealthy um like like tax cuts to the uber wealthy the poorest people oppose that because they feel like somehow they could be 
the wealthy, but you're never going to be that wealthy. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. And the, and that that idea that um, like we just watched that episode of Do You Say Nine with the um, uh, where they try to unionize quarks. Yeah. And one of the rules of acquisition that Rom. Quark's brother says is that, you know, we, Ferengi want to be the one exploiting the labor. We're not looking to not be exploited. We just want to be the ones exploiting the labor. I'm like, that feels very much more capitalistic than... Well, that, than anything else. And that's, that's really the amazing thing about, especially in in the States, but it's, it's really kind of conservative ideology everywhere in the Western world is that um, you convince poor people that they can be rich. Yeah. So you, you, you shape everything around supporting the rich and then tell them that they just have to work hard to exactly to get exactly and, and of course they can't so it's it's like this this terrible kind of structure i mean that doesn't really connect to the play well we're just, it, we're just, it, it, yeah we're bitching we're about it now yeah. but but i feel like it does have some connection because as you mentioned it seems like time in being a uh whether he's born rich or acquired his wealth through whatever means his attitude towards money is is very unique in I think in anything we've read by Shakespeare, like it's not, yeah. you don't really see characters throwing their money away. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And there's, there's a, 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 an ethos around money that comes from time in that feels both a little bit like Bill Gates and philanthropic in a way where he's just like, I'm going to give away money to the people, even though, even if they don't deserve it, he's giving money to the wealthiest people in Athens. Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. like he's giving money to the poor. So you're saying he's a Republican leader. I'm saying, exactly. <laughs> um, but then when he when he loses it all, there there is no social safety net. Yeah, yeah, there yeah, is yeah, yeah. no redemption for him. Yeah. Even when it's offered to him, even when he finds all yeah, the gold, yeah. he doesn't, he can't come back. Yes. Not that... Maybe he could come back. He doesn't want to come back. Yeah, there's yes. there's an attitude towards money that is very unique, conservative, very Republican, very um, capitalistic. Yeah. That I think maybe represents some of the anxieties that would have been new at this time in the mercantilist society yeah. and yeah. and uh, this burgeoning middle class where wealth was kind of like you said a precarious thing that not they'd never had before. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and your fortune could change overnight. And even if you came into wealth again, it wouldn't be the same, right? And maybe yeah. that's why he doesn't. I I still don't think the ending is justified as a like you know. Yeah, narratively, it still doesn't, feel, like doesn't good, feel great. But yeah, no, I I know what you mean. Yeah, but yeah, it's a good point. I also think that it's interesting. Um, there's an interesting corollary between um, the idea that money can buy friendship, mm-hmm. and I, I, all I could think about during this was uh, making the comparison between Timon and like someone like Mark Zuckerberg and the irony uh, of, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg building his entire fortune on a platform that was designed to get him more friends. <laughs> and I don't know that many people are friends with Mark Zuckerberg because he's a good person. Well, like I don't get well, that, and, that well, sense. And that, that's the other thing about uh, wealth that's not examined by the play, but it's, it's a real concern. And I guess you could, potentially read it into the play if you want but after a certain point of wealth it's impossible to tell who your real friends are yeah like because your your wealth becomes such a part of who you are i mean this is why uh athletes have entourages and musicians have entourages and stuff like that because they're and the i've never watched the show entourage but i understand that's one of the key things about it is like are these people really your friends or are they just there for the money yeah exactly and it's it's really an impossible line to draw and like to a certain extent i i you know i i feel bad for anybody who's super wealthy because you can never really determine that right so um maybe that's the pitiable part about time is the fact that he's he's so rich that he couldn't have figured out that these people weren't his friends because they gave him every impression that they were his friends although not really and that's what pisses me off about this because like the play starts with like he's like talking to the painter and the the poets about the things that they're giving him but they're not Mm -hmm. giving it to him they're selling it to him yeah and he doesn't realize they're not my friends they're just my i'm their painter you know exactly they're manipulating him they're painting and and doing things ostensibly for him, but to get money from him. Yeah. Everybody is everybody is an angle. Yeah. And that's the most capitalistic thing about this play. Absolutely. And that's so much a part of our world today as well, mm-hmm. right? Um, you talk about what, what amount of money um, leads to the greatest amount of happiness, and it's not millions and billions of dollars. It's, you know, 
low six figures, yeah. right? Yeah, it's upper middle class kind of. Yeah, yeah. and so it's the, the the chasing of wealth that for its own sake, yeah, yeah, for its own sake leads to so many other problems mm-hmm. um, that time and experiences that are realities for us in in this age where, like we said, the wealth inequality is so great. You've got some people in the world with more money than anybody in the world has ever had, than sometimes the whole world has ever had at certain points in our history. That's a big problem for for like a philosophical problem, a sociological mm-hmm. problem for, for that individual psychology. Mm-hmm. It's a problem, Absolutely. right? If I longer stay, we shall begin our ancient bickerings. Maybe that leads us to our ancient bickerings, which uh, I didn't really talk to Aiden about this before. I'm going to throw it out there. Um, What I thought would be a good question is, can money buy happiness? (laughs) Um, Which maybe would be a moot point. Then we will have to argue anyway, because I think we've answered it. But well. I'm okay. I, all right. Okay. All right. I have uh, it's not a yes, no answer, but okay. the, well, no, it is an answer. Yes. Money can absolutely money will not create happiness. Money will abs- dissolve all sorts of hindrances towards happiness. <laughs> you, you, yeah, okay. it is much easier to be happy when you're rich. It's not necessarily going to happen, but if you don't have to worry about working two uh, full-time jobs in order to survive, I think it's going to be easier to be happy that way. I think if you have enough money to uh, go on a vacation and do something that you enjoy, uh, to retire earlier, to do all of these things that do just literally cost money, mm-hmm. uh, that that can definitely contribute to happiness. And I think it's like there's been, I've seen so many, this, this tweet has shown up in my thread or uh, in my feed so many times, um, just summarizing like, yeah, you know, before before I got my good paying job, I was okay, but man, is it better now? <laughs> you know, kind right. of thing, right? And I mean, I think you and I have kind of experienced that, Lindsay. I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, as we've, you know, started to get solid careers and, and make, you know, stable incomes and afford things like a condo that's getting renovated <laughs> and being able to feed our cats. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, these things do add to your happiness. Um, but, you know, like to your point, if we had $20 million, is that really going to add much more to that? Because we have the things that we really want and we have the capacity to do um, what we want to do most of the time yeah. and stuff. So yeah. I, I'd say the answer is still yes. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I'm going to, I'm going to tell a story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's, it's an anecdote that I heard on a YouTube video. Okay. Um, so I may Solid get source. the details incorrect. <laughs> In fact, I have no details aside from the base Idea. You know, part of the story. Yeah. Um, and I think it was a philosopher at a party once with a, a very wealthy benefactor, somebody, you know, throwing a big party. And this philosopher was talking to another party guest and they were talking about how much money this billionaire had, millionaire, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Somebody with an obscene amount of money. They have so much. It must be great. And the philosopher says, but there's one thing that the philosopher doesn't have that I have. You mean the rich man has. That the billionaire has. Sorry. One thing that the billionaire has that I don't. (laughs) You've you've thrown me off my game now. One thing that I have that the billionaire doesn't have. Yes. And that's enough. Yes. Knowing what enough is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's that's that point about and I don't know what the figure is, the figure that well, is enough. I, I They did do a study a couple years back. Yeah. Uh, it was probably like 2011. So the number would have to adjust for inflation now. But it was it was basically saying I think it was like eighty thousand dollars Canadian. Yeah. If that was your annual income, anything over that did not increase the happiness right. level of the people who did it. Right. So at that point, it was literally like, do you really like your job? And like other yes. things could feed into that. But in terms of just pure money, uh, that was the that was the cutoff. And that's that's my point, is yeah. that I don't think that money is the thing that's going to buy you the happiness. As we've already talked about, the more money you have, the less secure you are in your own standing in the world when it comes to interpersonal relationships and the, the things that go on in your life. Are the people around me really there for... Uh, for my benefit, are they are they really here for me or are they here because they're going to get something out of it? And that, I think, has to feed more into 
the conversation about happiness than just having the material things like you mentioned yes having a condo is great and being able to afford to renovate it and yes having a secure job and and the the guarantee of a paycheck and you know all of that definitely contributes to lessening the anxiety that i'm sure many of our neighbors feel especially today with yeah. covid and you know another economic depression especially in alberta with oil prices collapsing last year at the same time there's a lot of economic anxiety mm-hmm. and we don't have that and that's amazing i don't know that if we had more that that would mean we'd be more happy in fact mm-hmm. i know it wouldn't it probably would lead to other problems um, more economic anxiety because yeah. what if you lose all this money and the idea well, that people coming in and asking you for money like that's exactly. like there's all those people who win the lottery and then they literally they, don't friends show their face come out of the well, woodwork because they want yeah. a loan or, or they you, just they decide oh I can't even accept this in public like you yeah, can't yeah. you can't hand me the big that check too, yeah. because I I don't want my yeah. neighbors to know that I won twenty million dollars yeah. or whatever yeah. and I think that um, that has to be a factor when you're talking about money buying happiness Mm -hmm. because the money itself is not what's going to give you that happiness it might lessen the burden of the things that would make you unhappy or maybe not unhappy but what would that would lead to stress Mm -hmm. or anxiety or sleepless nights as you wonder about where your next meal is going to come from but there are a lot of people who are low income who are very happy Mm -hmm. it's not about the money there's a there's a deeper sense of self there that makes them happy and i don't think money would make their lives easier would it make them happier i don't know that's why i'm saying no money can't buy you happiness i think money buys you material things that make life easier in a lot of cases but i don't think it leads to any sort of sense of spiritual happiness or philosophical happiness or psychological happiness necessarily it's not a necessary inherent yeah, I, yeah. I don't think like you can just someone who's who's really unhappy. I don't think if you just hand give them a bunch of money, it's, yeah, it's not going to solve their problem at all, right? So yeah, okay. I mean that's fair. I still think you're wrong. I think money definitely <sighs> buys happiness, but uh, it's close. Spoken like a true capitalist, Aiden. I I thought better of you. Hey man, it works. <laughs> it's true, brother. So what's next on our docket? Well, wouldn't you know it, Lindsay, we're going to be talking about Shakespeare and money next. Uh, we did not plan this one. Yeah. yeah, we were going to talk about something else entirely because like it, we've mentioned many times before, we came up with our list of topics while drunk at a bar. Well, I was drunk at the bar. You weren't um, that drunk. You'd had one beer. But yeah, but yeah. It, was, it was a hot summer day. We just come back from the Shakespeare Festival. Yes. We were on a high. We, we were excited. So yeah, so we planned this out uh, and then we realized we didn't want to do that topic. Yeah, and this, so- this one had come up a couple times. We, we talked about Shakespeare and the economy and and Elizabethan economics and all these yeah. things many times. So we're just going to dive right into that. Uh, Timon, Timon, Timon of Tim- Athens. <laughs> that that guy. It's time. It's good time to talk about that. So yeah, but talking about the Merchant of Venice and talking about um, all the the wealth questions that come up in mm-hmm. uh, and the economic arguments that come up in other plays from like Romeo and Juliet even and yeah, yeah, it's all uh, over King Lear place. and yeah. and um, yeah like questions of inheritance and yeah. and stuff like that so I think it'll be a an interesting topic and diving into yeah yeah like the Elizabethan mercantile society system that proto-capitalist that led to the bullshit that we're living through today yeah. um, I think that'll be an interesting topic yeah our next play is Macbeth. The big one. The last the last big one? Well, no, well, Antony and Cleopatra. Antony and Cleopatra. The Tempest. Kind of count. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The last yeah. big tragedy for but, sure. But Macbeth, yes. One yeah. of our favorites. Yeah. A short play. It is a short nice play. Nice short little play. I love it. And uh, we had previously already talked about this uh, film with our friend uh, James from yeah. Shakespeare on Screen. Um, Almost a year ago now. Yeah. That was uh, the... Last summer, yeah, last July, yeah. I think. So, so we'll, we'll, we'll link to the episode that he yeah. posted up. Um, you can get some early thoughts of ours. I'm sure we'll rehash some of it. Although that was yeah. very focused on the 2015 film, obviously. Which is fantastic. Which was really fun. Yeah. So um, yeah, we'll, we're definitely looking forward to Macbeth uh, for sure. And I think we may try and have a guest on that one as well. We're we'll, going to try. Well, we're going to see. If the guest is back from Ontario. <laughs> <laughs> so if this guest is listening, uh, prepare to get an email from us soon. Um, but yeah, that we're, there's a 
a few plays left, but we're getting this is the home stretch now. I'd say. Yeah, I, I think. a lot of the the problem plays are up, and and uh, yeah. and we always end our our episodes like this, looking forward to what's coming. Yeah, I, I guess it's a good thing. Yeah. No, you're you're right. That's true. <laughs> it just seems like we say the same thing every week. But it's true. It's always exciting. So uh, yeah, thank you for joining us today. We'll uh, catch you at the next one. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at TheBixPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TheBixPod, or by email at TheBixPod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.